Hey everybody, welcome back. It is season six and the hype is reaching a fever pitch. The first episode has happened and I know a lot of you are eager to hear any kind of thoughts, theories, and ideas on how all this may or may not connect to the books because, hey, we're in uncharted territory. Everybody's wondering, did what we just saw tell us anything about the books, what's coming in TWOW or even later than that? What's relevant, what isn't, what's interesting, what can we forget about? Well, I think we've got a lot of answers for you today, and we're ready to dive into Season 6 with full gusto, so let's do that. I want to do a quick bit of intro about the difference between these episodes and our Monday episodes, which are not discussing the books at all. We have Sean from House Beard in on Mondays doing what's mostly a first thoughts, first reactions, and TV viewer only type of approach to it. So there's something to be gained from both versions of our reviews. Even if you are a book reader, there's a lot for you in the show only reviews, even though we're not talking about the book specifically. And of course, if you're a book reader, I expect you would prefer this review, but I think you'd enjoy both of them. Anyway, that should explain the difference. A quick word about spoilers as well. I don't know what really constitutes a spoiler anymore, to be honest. We're going to try to be mindful of that. We're not going to talk about what's coming next week until after the credits of this episode. In other words, things that we've learned from the next on Game of Thrones, which some people like to avoid. So for you, if you want to avoid those and still discuss here about the episode with us, well, we've got you covered. We'll save that for after the credits. So we've, we've budgeted about 15, 20 minutes to discuss that because there's actually quite a lot to talk about there. But I also want to reintroduce my guests who we had last year. It was very successful. Both we all enjoyed it, and so did you guys. The feedback was great. So welcome back, Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy of Radio Westeros. Hello. Very happy to be back here with you discussing Season 6 of Game of Thrones. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me is Yoke Boy. Hi, I'm Yoke Boy, as well from Radio Westeros. Uh, we do have a YouTube channel, Radio Westeros, if you want to swing by and um, subscribe, if you like what we have to say, or check out our podcast at RadioWesteros.com, and really looking forward to analysing Season 6 with Aziz. Right on, we've got a lot of different locations here, uh, Lady Gwen's there in Boston, Yoke Boy's in England, I'm in Atlanta, we don't have a Shea today, she'll be in and out of the reviews this season, she's uh, got... A lot going on in real life as well. Sometimes real life interferes with our fantasy life. That's too bad. But it is what it is. She's still contributing to the show as a producer and director and will be on to give her opinions from time to time. So fear not. She will be back. Just not this time. So we've got a few more notes on how we're going to handle these reviews this season. And then we'll dive right into the material. As I said, anything to do with next week's episode, as in the next on Game of Thrones, we're saving for the end. During this season... Some of these reviews we're going to have live, as in, these are all recorded live, but they'll be live and you, with the opportunity for you to watch along with us and ask questions. We'll do Q&A type formats, maybe a hybrid with part Q&A, part review. We'll be announcing those as the season goes on. We don't have any of them announced just yet, no dates yet, but the first one will probably be around mid-season. We'll probably handle the episodes one at a time in the early going and let some good questions build up because we all know the second half, the pattern has been for all seasons, that there's more climax, more movement in the plot in the second half of the books. Maybe that means there's more to discuss. 
maybe more to predict and guess about in this early part and more to figure out where things are going. We'll also be doing a guest spot on another channel at the end of the season as a wrap-up. We'll announce those details as they come through. We'll keep that secret for now and let you get excited about that possibility. And of course, we're going to be focused mostly on connecting this material to the books, as difficult as that is, because as you all know, we're in uncharted territory. Most of the book plot lines are behind the show at this point. Not all, but most. Now, as usual, we're going to back up our opinions with evidence whenever possible, but being in uncharted territory means we don't always have evidence. We're just going to go with our gut sometimes. We're going to be guessing sometimes. Well, that's part of the fun. Sometimes we'll be wrong. Sometimes we'll be right. We'll get to pat ourselves in the back later for saying, ah, I called that one. Or, oh, sure was wrong about that one. Things like that. There'll be a lot of that. It'll be fun. That's part of the fun, trying to guess and not always being right. So, themes for this episode. We always like to start off with a bit of an overall view. Uh, certainly death and mourning were a big part of it. The first three scenes all featured someone mourning over a body. John, Miranda, and Marcella. We have a lot of aging and loss as a big part of it with Melisandre again. Cersei, Jorah even, he's aging at a Arguably aging, not really aging, but dying. His, his time is short, any way you look at it. The loss of the Baratheons and the Martells, even though Tommen is technically a Baratheon, he's not really a Baratheon. And intra-house slash region conflict, meaning almost every region is at war with itself. Dorne, obviously. The Wall, infighting there, plus the Wildlings getting involved, and the threat of the White Walkers above everything. But not just there. The rest of the North is in a bit of turmoil. King's Landing, and apparently we're going to have the Ironborn coming soon, and if Euron Greyjoy is, is cast as we've all been told and seen clips of, well, that means there'll be inner turmoil there, too. So all of Westeros seems to be fighting itself, perhaps even more so than during the War of the Five Kings, and that just is just what game, you know, a big part of Game of Thrones, a big theme of it. Everybody's fighting themselves when they should be worried about the greater evil. So Lady Gwen, Yoke Boy, what about your uh, thoughts overall of the episode as a whole before we get into initial details? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Did you like parts of it, not other parts? And, and what are you most excited for so far? Um, well, I thought it gave a good grounding, a kind of, you know, springboard episode as episodes one are really obliged to do. Um, I didn't think it was outstanding, but I do think it, it gave a good platform to build the, the rest of the season on. So, you know, I was reasonably satisfied with it. Right on. Lady Gwen, what about you? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Definitely a setup episode, as these usually are. Some high points. Uh, the first five or ten minutes was, in my opinion, was a big high point. Um, there were some low points, as we'll discuss. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone's mostly in agreement on one of the biggest low points, probably. And But we'll get to that. And even though there's low points, now here's the thing about low points, even if we don't like them. That doesn't mean there isn't interesting things we can't figure out. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try to carry over that positive attitude into our analysis. As fans, we can totally be disgusted with something. It doesn't mean there isn't information to glean. And it's important to set aside that disgust or disappointment because otherwise you can't be a good analyst. And so I, on Monday, I was a bit processing it all and being, you know, disappointed with Dorn and some other things. But, you know, I got over it, set it aside. And, and, and I think we've discovered some interesting things and have some interesting theories about that 
but we'll get to that as we come. We're going to start where the episode itself started, which is at the wall, and we'll stay in the north and work our way south, head to Essos at the end. So, first of all, a question I had right away, and I think a few other people had that question as well, why is Davos going so far for John? What's the connection there? They didn't really show a lot of loyalty to each other before. They didn't have any sort they didn't even have a lot of interaction before. Now I think that John and Stannis had a lot in common and especially that came out in the books. So people book readers like ourselves would maybe understand this connection a bit more. Maybe it seems a little less random. Yoke boy, what do you think though? What do you think that connects them like that? Or Lady Gwyn, whichever you guys has a strong opinion on this. Um I think that uh Davos really stands for what's right. In the books and in the show, he's the one who urged Stannis to go to the Wall in the first place as being the right thing to do. And that's, you know, his his objective there, defending the realm, is um, kind of in line with what John was doing, protecting people. Um, so I think those two are united by this kind of moral realism that, um, you know, they're they're trying to do the right thing for people. That makes a lot of sense, and I would say one other thing that, that they do together, they both have done, is doing unpopular things for the greater good. Now, uh, Stannis, by the end, was maybe slipped away from that <laughs> quite a lot, but his initial intent setting out for the Wall was to do was do the right thing, to win the throne by saving the realm, as, in, as he says in the books. I was trying to... Save the, take the throne to save the thr- realm, but I should have been saving the realm to take the throne. And obviously the sh- show Stannis maybe didn't really work out quite like that, but there were certainly aspects of that that were familiar. But I, I agree with you. Uh, there's just I think it's there united based on both being good guys. They're effectively the moralistic um, guys who are, care about the realm and their duty. And yeah, game recognized game there, I think. Now we also have from that scene, we have Melisandre looking at John's body, and it seems to be part of her arc for this episode, and maybe what we'll see for her in the short term is being a bit, maybe not a bit, that might be an understatement, that she's depressed, she's lost her faith somewhat, if not almost entirely, nothing's worked out the way she thought it was going to, and this is part of that. She saw a vision of John fighting outside Winterfell. Which she thinks, well, that can't happen now. Of course, we all think, yeah, no, you're not wrong. That's still going to happen. <laughs> but how and when, that's just a big question. We, how she's going to do it, I really don't know. That's a question we've gotten a lot. Like, what's the mechanism for this resurrection? Is it going to be just the kiss of life? I really don't know. That's something we can hardly guess at. We'll talk about that in the morning a bit. But in the short, for now, let's talk about the immediate aftermath. Lady Gwen, what do you think of Alistair's speech? I thought it was pretty powerful, but, and well done. Owen oh, Teal, the actor, really did a great job. But what about the content of the speech? Did you, were you buying it? I really, no. <laughs> short, <laughs> short answer. Is it just me or was there, there's a purposeful contrast between what we saw in the previously on where, you know, John comes to the gates and says, open the gates. And then it's, it's Alistair Thorne who opens the gates. And then in that speech where um, Thorne talks about, you know, how it was such a wrong thing to open the gates and let the wildlings through, it seems like, you know, he's really justifying his actions, just using semantics. I think this 
words are wind. <laughs> um, he's he's saying, essentially, I never disobeyed an order, but I killed the Lord Commander because I didn't agree with his orders. Therefore, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, Wasn't that really one um, of the rules? as an unwritten rule, right? <laughs> I would think that would be one of the sort of unwritten rules of the Night's Watch, but... Um, so I was, I kind of wasn't buying it, you know, it was a ring of a, you know, a, a speech, so to give a good speech and kind of get people on your side. But when you listen to the content of it, he says, letting the wildlings through would have been the end of the Night's Watch, but they've already left. Yeah, it's a bit late through. for that, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. So what is that? I think, you know, going forward, that doesn't really bode well for the wildlings or, or what Thorne's intentions are. Yeah, I don't think it bodes well for anyone because, like we talked about at the beginning, this is another example of infighting that's about to happen or is sort of happening already that really is just making the White Walkers' job easier. Or creating, if at the very least, those are dead bodies that might be raised at, at the worst. Or that's at the worst. At the very least, they're just bodies that aren't living to fight the dead anymore. So... And there's another aspect of the speech. There's another way we can look at this. It's not just whether you believe him, whether it's convincing, but what the characters believe. Now, Davos believes that if they open the doors to Alistair and his men, they're dead men. Now, if if Alistair is telling the truth in his speech, then you might tend to believe him that he really will just let these other brothers rejoin the ranks of the Night's Watch. But if Davos, who is a good judge of character doesn't believe Alistair, then I think that's a good reason for us also not to, to fully trust his speech. It's sort of like taking the lead from a character who is knows more than we do, in a sense. <laughs> his read on Alistair is probably better than, than ours might be, because he's an experienced smuggler who is, is alive today because of what a good judge of character he is. The same judgment that led him to follow Stannis and John, who that he you know, trusts as people that are worth following. And did you have, Lady Gwyn, you had some more thoughts on that chat, but through the door there, perhaps? What, what, Alistair and Davos and that whole thing? Yeah, you know, I thought initially that this was just some silly bit of dialogue, this request for money, <laughs> um, you know, um, but our, our friend Brandon Beefish pointed out that this, the request for mutton wasn't really just silly dialogue. Davos is sussing out um, the fact that Thorne really had no plan to provision him for a journey mm. south. Um, so he's really kind of showing his street smarts there. He gets, he kind of tricks Thorne into, you know, showing That his is hand. a good catch. You know, I didn't realize that either. Good, good catch there, Brendan B. Fish. That's Jeff Hartline of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog. That is clever. Yeah, I think that is. Hmm. Well, good example of what we we're talking about. Davos being experienced knows how to get people to reveal things about themselves. It's like getting at a poker table, getting someone to show a tell or something like that. And for someone like Davos, they're going to have a lot of confidence in that in that tell in that read. And and of course, with this, with his life on the line, it's also not worth taking a chance. So, but let's talk about John. Let's talk about what's going to happen with 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 Davos and those the. The other Night's Watchmen crammed in that room. It's kind of a wait-and-see thing. I think we expect them to survive. The how, whether they're going to be saved by the Wildlings and or Melisandre is kind of up in there, so we'll just have to kind of wait and see. The big burning question for a lot of people is John. What's going to happen with John? So let's relate this to the books as much as possible. How much is this going to be similar? Yoke Boy, I'm going to ask you this. Is John 
inside ghost right now? Do you think it, v- book versus show? Do you think he is or isn't? I I say in the book, all the clues point to John being inside ghost. With with the maybe the prime clue is the entire Varimir prologue, where it really lays out the rules of Second Life. You know, prologues are there to really, you know, give you information and set things up, aren't yes. they? So I, I would say there's a few other clues as well. He, call, he called his name very late on. So I would say in the books, it looks very, I, I'm almost positive that he's inside Ghost. And in the TV show, the first thing we we hear is Ghost howling after John's being been murdered. And there I was thinking, hey, this is going to be the same as the books. But after we see Ghost for a while, there's no indication that John's in there. There's no POV. And I thought about it. And I think they'll, on the TV show, they'll just resurrect him. I don't think... For, for one thing, John is not a warg in the TV show. They've never made... Only Bran is. They've never made any effort to show... So there's no precedent. It would be a deus ex machina for sure. And uh, something they'd want to avoid... There's no va- nothing about Varamir, so the, yeah, like I said, there's no groundwork being done. It it would be an easier explanation if John just comes back from the dead in the TV show. How, do you guys agree with this? Well, that is how it's been set up in the. T- I agree with you consistently. Consistency wise, the TV show has set it up with by showing the thing with Thoros and Beric. That's what they've shown as far as resurrecting. You're right, Arya and John. And perhaps even Rob, that we never saw his point of view, there was all evidence for them being wargs. But there's none of that in the show. Arya isn't looking through the eyes of any cats. She's not dreaming of Nymeria. John has had no ghost dreams. So you're right. That would be completely out of nowhere for show watchers. For us book readers, we would think that was completely normal. But yeah, that doesn't really fit. And another clue along the lines of what you were saying, the way the show played it off, when ghost is nuzzling at John's hand in that scene, which was kind of sad. That's not what John would be doing if he's controlling Ghost. He's not going to nuzzle at his own hand. That's that's a wolf crying over his dead master, not uh, a war, you know, sniffing at his own hand. Right. That would just be... <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Lady Gwen, you had another idea? Maybe something along the lines of dreams? Well, I did, just it was, a, it was kind of a one-off idea, but I do want to say I agree with both of you completely, and I noticed that the hand sniffing, too, kind of, you know... Kind of did it for me. I really don't think that um, John is in there. But um, the one when I was thinking about how could the show um, deal with this, you know, as a kind of a late in the game explanation, they could just have John wake up and say, oh, you know, I had this I had this weird dream um, and sort of talk about having been inside Ghost. But honestly, I think that would be a very slim chance, and the York boy's shaking his head at me, so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> we Hopefully it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> One place the show and book may converge a bit on this plot is, I, and I don't want this at all, I don't think anyone wants this, would be something to do with Ghost's death paying for John's resurrection. That's something the show has set up, and that's something that could happen in the books either way killing ghosts to get his spirit out and back into his body is something that could happen in the books. Maybe. I mean, we're just throwing out ideas. We have no no real strong reason to believe that. It's just an idea that's somewhat popular in the fandom. 
the show could go a similar route without having to have John Worgen to ghost first. That's not, that could cut that, they could skip over that part, still be somewhat fitting, be really sad, but I can't say it, that doesn't mean it won't happen. Um, as another aspect of this that people have been discussing, I've seen, is the the blood left behind by John. Now, here's something I say in general about the show. The show is not subtle. I don't mean that as a negative thing, but they it's just not their style. They don't do sneaky things like that and make them important. They do sneaky things, but they make sure you know. They tell you. They're not... This is not... This is an, for a broad audience for a lot of people this is not designed just for us book readers who are really keen on small details like that so i really think that the blood spatter means nothing whatsoever they didn't focus on it it was an outside thing you can you have to freeze frame it to really take a look and if they wanted it to be to look like something i think they would have made it more obvious do you guys do you guys feel the same way i didn't think it looked like anything apart from a blood splatter <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I felt I thought you know the it's a the Westerosi version of a Rorschach test. <laughs> I looked at it, and one minute I saw, oh, if I go like this, maybe it's a dragon, or if I look at it a different way, maybe it's a wolf's head, or uh, maybe it's just a pool of blood. Yeah, probably what it is. We could end up being wrong on that. I wouldn't mind being wrong there, but we'll see. So uh, here's a couple other questions for the wall. Will Ed succeed? I kind of think he probably will. There's that trailer scene beginning of the season where we have 1-1 coming, it looks like, to Castle Black. And if 1-1's coming, I imagine there's other wildings with him. And 1-1 by himself is capable of dealing with most of the Night's Watch, possibly by himself. (laughs) But this is sad because, again, it's just they're just wiping each other out. They're making the job easier for the Boltons and or the White Walkers. Parallels all the struggles for the Iron Throne, the realm weakening itself. What do you guys think? Will Will Ed? Are we going to see Dolores Ed succeed in bringing the Wildlings, or is Melisandre going to be the one to help, or is it going to be both? It's kind of a tough call, huh? I think if anything, well, it'll be definitely the Wildlings, possibly both. I mean, I do expect Melisandre to come back from this. She's, uh, Javo says, I, you haven't seen what she can do. What is it she can do that's relevant here? What have we seen her do in the show that might be of use here? Shadow babies? Is that, is it going to be that? I mean, he has, he certainly saw that big, you know, up close, closer than he wanted to be. I have, I've been wondering if this is the return of the shadow babies. We're going to see. Alice or Thorne go down to a shadow baby, maybe, or something like that. Uh, that would be something. <laughs> oh, Mel and Davos finally get to make that shadow baby together. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, it's, it's been a while for her. <laughs> but I bet she hasn't forgotten how to do it. Double entendre there. Forgotten how to do it. Uh, hmm. Okay, so... Let's stay at the wall, even though this is the final scene of the episode. We'll, we'll cover it all in this section. Now, Davos is, of course, not aware of this. Maybe he will be eventually. But really, right now, this is just Melisandre and the audience sharing this moment. Us book readers, I think we knew. Most of us knew that she was old. We didn't know how old. We knew that she was older than she looked. But I don't know. Did you guys... Think were you expecting this? Were you thinking maybe she would look 
maybe it would be less extreme. Maybe she'd have burned skin or tattoos, possibly like slave tattoos. Of course, I could see the show just cutting that out because it's not relevant to this, the plotline that they've done. But do you think maybe if we get that kind of reveal in the books that we'll see more, more detail, more interesting truth behind her glamour? I'm not sure I want to see more detail. <laughs> good call, good call. Well, j- just going to the books, I- I'll tell you that, you know, the prime clue is this quote, Melisandre had practiced her art for years beyond count, and she had paid the price. So that, that really fits. Um, but in the after the episode, D&D did say that she was several centuries old. And, yeah, that really... That that was shocking to some people because I, I thought she was about 100 years old. I, I actually thought she was the daughter of Shiera Seastar because they looked um, very similar in their descriptions. But, you know, they, she'd have to be 100, so that's out the window. I don't know the implications for the books. If she is, say, you know, 300 years old, I've heard figures two, three, and 400 being touted by different actors. So, you know, it'd be nice to know. I might actually ask him at Balticon exactly how old, see if George answers. That would be wonderful if we got a straight answer on that. George doesn't like to be pinned down on dates and times, but he might at least give us a better ballpark and confirm that the ballpark is really that large. Because if he says, you know, D&D could have been paraphrasing a little, maybe it is just 100 years old. That's still possible, you know, if they were just exaggerating a little or paraphrasing George in a way that he didn't mean to be paraphrased. But it does look bad for the Shiera plus Bloodraven equals Melisandre theory. Maybe not totally dead, but yeah, not looking great there. But on the other hand, if she really is that old, 200 years or more, and she's been a follower of R'hllor and expecting the return of Azor Ahai this whole time, that just makes the loss of her faith even more powerful. She's been holding out. She's been a zealot, a believer for so long, more than, you know, multiple lifetimes. And to have it all crashing down like that is just really huge. What, Lady Gwen, what do you think about this loss of faith in general? Oh, I think it's, you know... I- it's really sad and what a powerful scene that it was um it it's hit her very hard you know and like you was saying it it's just the depth of it implies that she has been holding these beliefs for so long i think uh it sets her up um for us to really feel a lot of sympathy for her and in fact um liam cunningham did an interview where he indicated that that's one of the main purposes of that scene is to make the audience feel empathy uh, for a character that we really haven't had a lot of reason to feel empathy for over all the seasons, but specifically during, you know, the last half of last season, um, people were not feeling very kindly charitable towards Melisandre. So. After the burning of Shireen, I've wondered if this scene could be, you know, the start of a kind of redemption arc for Melisandre this season and you know maybe by the end of the season we'll be right behind her which would be a hell of a turnaround in the space of one season from burning you know the cutest (laughs) cutest character in the whole story to you know uh, us being in her corner I wonder if 
that there could be a redemption arc and we could all be full Melisandre by the end of this season. It's a it's a bit like what happened with Jamie in the books. Jamie's less redeemed in the show than he was, but he's still fairly redeemed. Uh, in the books, of course, the reason his redemption is more thorough is because we see his inner thoughts and we know that it's very genuine. We we know what he's thinking, we know he's sincere. In the show, we can assume he's fairly sincere, but it just hits harder in the books because you get to see his inner thoughts and, and have that confirmed. But I do, that's the strongest parallel, I think. I mean, and it's for very similar reasons. The reason we hated them initially was because of what they did to a child. Jamie trying to kill Bran and Melisandre killing Shireen, and both very callously. Like, it just oh, it needed to be done. You know, they're not like there's not a lot of remorse there. Even in Jamie's remorse, even with Jamie's redemption, he never really felt that bad for, for what he did to Bran. <laughs> he never was like, oh, I really shouldn't have done that. His, he, he just, he just becomes a better person for other reasons without necessarily reflecting on that particular thing he did wrong. But it's still similar in that regard very much, I think. And that's, uh, that's really important. And it just goes to show this is something unlike we've ever seen or read. The, the, uh, the amount of, the swings, rather, of how we feel about certain characters. It's just up and down and all over the place. And and I agree with you guys that it, it's setting up a redemption, and there's a strong reason for that. If she's going to be bringing John back, it makes sense for her to not just stop there, to be part of him, part of his efforts to save the realm. If she's fighting against the White Walkers, then, hey, you got to give her brownie points for that. That's That's pretty strong. And I think she's still... She's still probably going to want to fight against the Great Other. That's, that's still probably going to be part of her, who she is, even though she's a bit disillusioned right now. I think if she were, if she raises John, that might restore her faith, perhaps, or at least partially restore her faith if she discovers that John all along was the one she was supposed to be following or, or promoting. That might restore some things, get her her energy back. But for now, yeah, she seems to be defeated and broken. And that was the big part of that scene was to show that she's, Stripping off all of her, all this effort she's put into being this other being. And it's, yeah, I thought it was pretty powerful. I don't know. Some people think maybe it wasn't necessary to go that far with it. And I can agree with that. I could see it, it would it would have maybe been more powerful. If she just, just looked in the mirror and you could just see the glimpse of that. But again, like with the blood test or the, the blood spatter thing, this, this show, that's not their style. They show you full frontal, <laughs> literally in this case. And move on to the rest of the north. Right here we have Sansa and Theon. 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 I just combined Theon and Brienne's name into one. That Try to imagine them as one person. No, don't. Sansa, Theon, Brienne, and Podrick. We have this fight scene. The fight's pretty basic, except for who left the dogs out? Who? They just disappeared there, it seemed like. Once the fight started, wouldn't you think they would still be going after after Sansa? They had, they had, had to restrain them. I don't know that hunting dogs would just run off because people are fighting. Maybe they would. That's what we have to think. But uh, to me, that was a little confusing. But whatever. Speaking of leaving things out, they left, they leave out shields again. No one ever has shields when they fight. <laughs> so strange. They left out the dogs and the shields. But I guess HBO hates shields, even though it's a great option, a great way to show the big sigils that they're selling merchandise for. So, Yuck Boy, give me your thoughts on on some parallels you may have seen in this in this scene to some other previous scenes. Okay, I don't know if this was at all purposeful, but when I saw Theon saving Pod, it really reminded me of Blackwater when 
pod save Tyrion, you know, and it came from no this this uh, attack from behind out of nowhere. So it just reminded me of that. No idea if that was any kind of nod. Uh, another thought I had was that Sansa and Theon were seen hugging after they went through the river. And that shows that Sansa's really forgiven Theon by this point and that the pair are now very close. And when you want two adversary characters to make up with each other and become close, uh, an often used writing device is to put them through trauma together and to bring in a villain to threaten them both. Another time we saw this device is when Jamie and Brienne were against each other until Locke or Vargo showed up and the experience really bonded Jamie and Cersei together. So the same dynamics are at play here with Sansa and Theon, I think. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good observation there, a good parallel to notice. I've got another parallel for Podrick later in this episode that we'll talk about, so maybe that should have been one of the themes. <laughs> this is all about Podrick. Game of Pod Game of Squires. Game of Podricks. So, Lady Gwen, what did you think of Brienne's new pledge? Uh, I found this that whole scene was really emotional um, for me. The whole, all the Theon and Sansa interactions, and right up through the Brienne, the fight, Brienne's uh, bowing. Um, so first of all, Brienne, they go through this fight, and Brienne comes and lays her sword at Sansa's feet, and it's Oathkeeper. Um, so you know, here, here you go, Sansa. I offer you half of your father's sword. Um, yeah, it's funny they're not even aware of that, are they? Well, I guess Brienne might be dimly aware of that, but Sansa's got no. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> not sure how, how knowledge of that has has flowed, but um, maybe in the books, I don't know. But anyways, but I thought about the scene was, you know, it's it's nearly word for word what um, the cat and Brienne exchanged from A Clash of Kings, which we also saw in the show in season two. Um, so that's a neat little parallel, of course. And uh, you even see this Sansa has this hesitation where um, Podrick has to feed her a line. And it does seem a little weird, but then I wondered if it's kind of a clunky nod at something from the books, which is Kat has this sense of um, inner amusement while she's having the exchange with Brienne in Clash of Kings because these words are mostly, not mostly, almost exclusively, passed between men so she thinks to herself oh you know i've never had to say these words before it'd be really weird if ned could see me now you know taking someone's sword so it could have been a little nod i think yeah so it's kind of hard to predict where this arc will go specifically uh, we got a general idea sansa's gonna maybe head maybe head to the wall maybe head to some other northern house but Given what we know from preseason trailers, it seems that Brienne is going to be end up in the Riverlands. And from that, we can deduce, I think, that Sansa's in good hands. I don't think Brienne gets sent away by Sansa, who's now in charge, unless Sansa is in a good spot. She's not going to dismiss her new loyal protector if she's still in a lot of danger. So... What are the what do we think is going to happen there as far as why Brienne is going to the Riverlands? You think maybe it's looking for Arya or is it maybe looking for alliances? The Riverlands, you know, there's a there's strong ties still with the Tullys and some of the river lords to the north and to Rob and maybe that's what's happening as she's trying to 
see what's going on there in terms of what kind of support they might be able to expect because the realm is still kind of torn apart and there's still, you know, Lannisters are not exactly, have, they don't exactly have the realm on lockdown. <laughs> you know, they, they're on the throne, but, you know, it's, it's kind of tentative. Do you think there's any possibilities there or maybe it has something to do with Rickon being discovered? Um, Sansa, of course, could be retaking Rickon's place a bit in the books as the, the northern figure to rally behind. What do you guys think about that in general? Uh, I think in terms of going to the Riverlands, that there's probably going to be an element of uh, looking for Arya and an element of, you know, find, seeking out Sansa's, you know, still got family there. So um, looking for the Blackfish. Yeah, or, the Blackfish. I didn't mention him. Yeah. Um, looking for, you know, taking a read of what the situation is down there. Like you were saying, they just they'd have a lot of possible allies that she could call upon with her Tully connection. So, um, What do you think about Theon now? Theon's new role, this is quite different from where he is in the books. Of course, in the books, he's captured by, he's jumped off the wall right at the end of, or the, off of Winterfell right at the end of the books. And we, if you've read the spoiler chapter, you have a little bit of idea where he's at. I won't talk about that in case you are avoiding the T-Wow spoilers, but let's just say He's in a much better place in the show as far as his personal safety. What do we think he might be doing? What do you think his what the future holds for him? Well, I think um, so. The, the show could go in their own kind of direction, and maybe he finds redemption serving Sansa the way he once served Rob, and you know, re- obviously regrets that he abandoned that. Uh, but the show could also, you know, maybe his destiny lies somewhere more island-shaped. <laughs> um, still, still hopeful for or that, maybe? maybe at the wall. I, you know, there, there's um, these are things that lots of people talk about happening in the books. Um, could we have a Theon latecomer scenario or a taking the black scenario? These things that have been floated around. Either one of those could potentially still happen in the show kind of in a roundabout way i think we just have to wait well if he went to the wall it would hark back to season two when lewin was advising him to go and take the black and you know gain forgiveness yeah that i could way. still circle back and that happened yeah so it's an interesting idea okay let's move on to winterfell we have ramsey's moment of tenderness probably the only one we'll ever get <laughs> It And in fact, it doesn't really seem like there is anyone else that he even has real feelings for, except for maybe his father, who is, of course, he doesn't have those kind of feelings for. What I mean is his father's the only one that can get him to feel things other than lust or greed or these other base emotions. And... To me, that means he might even get nastier. There's nobody he really likes anymore. Like, as inhuman as he is, these things still matter. You know, he's basically a psychopath. He's always been a psychopath. Now he's a psychopath that's been, you know, kind of lost his only real lifeline. And so now it's just his father who is you know not exactly a nice man (laughs) so and of course he might get desperate with the situation with sansa too given what's been what his father has kind of threatened him with yoke boy what are you what's your take on the situation well thinking about the books and being hopeful there is an avenue here for a pink letter potential 
Uh, he could d demand the return of Sansa and Theon, just like the books, and this would mean that Sansa could go to the Wall, or at least Ramsay thinks that she does. And part of Ramsay's threat in the books is to kill Mance. And we, we've wondered, when we've talked about this, will he have a hostage this time? And we're kind of praying it won't be Rickon. Yeah, I'm really worried it will be. <laughs> There's this, several clues indicating why it might be, and that's just terrifying. Yeah, really, really hope that's not the case, but there's a lot of reasons to be worried about Rickon here. One of the quotes early in the in the preseason trailer leads to that. We'll talk about that more at the after the credits, because it's a bit spoilery, but let's just say we're worried about Rickon a bit. What about the chat between Roos and Ramsey regarding the battle and the upcoming threats. Yokoi, what do you think about that? Well, there was confirmation at last that Stannis is dead because I think all of us thought were 100% were positive that Stannis had died last season, but of course not showing the actual death, the fandom being as they are, there was uh, counter theories, but I think he says... I'd reward the man, you know, who killed Stannis. So, obviously it was a woman. That was the joke there. Seems to imply that they found the body, like you're saying. Yeah. yeah they'd... So, let's see here. Also, Lady Gwen, what about the speech of about, do you feel like a victor? That was just, what a, he's so just mean. <laughs> just so. <laughs> it was, it's, it's a, that is, it was an obvious trap, and you could see um, Ewan Rian's face. He had this, like, like you could see the whites of his eyes, like this fear. Um, you could tell that Ramsay was very, very scared, like, oh no, we know. <laughs> there's something here that's not going to be good news for me. And, um, it, of course, the conversation ends up with the not-so-subtle threat of uh, Walda's son um and you'd see that uh ramsey still well still or continues yes, the, the, he feels fears his father i thought this was his rangiest acting not because he's not a rangy actor he is a rangy actor but you know being ramsey he's most of the time just got to be a psychopath and he but he does get to show his chops showing just how insecure he is around his father as well as previously he gets to show some emotion for miranda uh, which, you know, ends in feeding the dogs her body. But still, you know, he's still Ramsey. <laughs> but I like <laughs> right. that we got to see some different looks at, at him. Okay, so let's talk about the rest of the North. That's something that, that Roos brings up that's very important. He says, look, we've got to get the rest of the North in line if we're going to deal with the Lannisters because, you know, they've rebelled, basically betrayed the Lannisters with the whole Sansa Stark situation so, Yokeboy, talk to us about northern houses that we expect to see, that we might see, and also tell us about how much of a threat are the Lannisters really at this point, especially to the Boltons. Are they or aren't they? Okay, so first of all, you know, the question arises, which houses in the north do we expect to see and which side will they take? And... Most of these have been mentioned before to come some capacity. We've got the Umbers, and that's maybe where Rickon is hanging out. 
we've seen Amandali at the Red Wedding. The Kerwins have been mentioned. And then there's, I think there's been mentions of the Mormonts, the Carnes, Carstarks, and even the Hornwoods. Uh, as to your Lannister question, honestly, I, I don't think the Lannisters are in reality much of a threat at the moment. And I think this mention of the Lannisters was probably just a device to underline the importance of, of Sansa to Roos and the Boltons and that Ramsay will stop at nothing to bring her back as the control of the North could hinge on her return. So I just think it was a device and I don't think there will be a North Lannister conflict in the future. I agree with you there. Mo Kalen has been shown to be formidable in the show as well as the books. And frankly, the Lannisters, there isn't a single region that they can truly count on as an ally right now. The Tyrells are the closest thing they have to an ally, and they're pretty tight. But there's plenty of reasons to doubt their full support. And there's the situation in Dorne now. We expect the Riverlands to be an issue this season, and we know they're not fully pacified. The Ironborn are going to get going, as we believe. The Faith, and that doesn't even mention the Veil. Who knows what's going to happen there, whether they're going to be a part of it. Looks like they may get involved in this northern conflict. Littlefinger's still doing his thing. And here in the north, there's going to be infighting. Not everyone's going to fight with the Boltons, but some will. Some will fight against them. And there's possibility for this intra-Bolton conflict, too. As we alluded to more than once now in this episode, there's so much infighting going on. And because it's happening everywhere, I almost think there's a good chance it will happen with the Boltons. I think Ramsay might turn on Roos. As scared as he is of his father, he's also really scared of being disowned. He hated his bastard status. And though he'd still be a Bolton if the new son was put ahead of him, or designated his heir, or said, look, the, 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 the Dreadfort's going to pass to this new kid, because, you know, even if it goes through Ramsay first, because Ramsay, you have no kids of your own, that scares him too, and it's a matter of what is he more scared of. And if he, I could see him turning on his father, I, I really could, especially because of how much of a theme it's been. So we'll wait and see on that. I don't know whether his fear will outweigh, his fear of his father will outweigh his fear of, of not being able to meet his ambitions, etc. So... Well, it's a developing situation. We'll have to see. Let us now go south. Let's talk about King's Landing and the various plots are going there, going on there. It seems like a powder keg. There's all sorts of things going on that look like they could break out into violence or problematic alliances or both. We'll start with the thing we got less attention on, which was Marjorie, Septa, Unella, and the High Sparrow. No sign of Loras or Queen of Thorns yet, but we hear talk of Loras, and it seems like that's a piece of information they're holding on to to get what they want from Marjorie. She asks about Loras, she asks about Loras, and they tell her nothing. They get She gets deprivation and beatings and an uncompromising attitude, and the High Sparrow comes in and offers a reprieve from this. You know, it's like goods, I said this in the show only review, it's like good septa, or good septa and bad septa. They're like good cop, bad cop type situation. And it seems like that's what they're, the Loras thing is and they're using as leverage against her. I think that what might get her to crack, might finally get her to start confessing the way she wants, her fear of safety to her brother, which is ironic because confessing might make things worse for Loras, but we're not really sure. Lady Gwen, what do you think about this? What do you think of the the different possibilities here? And what, what do you think? Do you think Marjorie is going to 
go all the way here? Is she going to maybe convert? Yeah, well, I think that could be, I got the real serious vibe. That's what he's angling for. Maybe that's what we're heading. Because imagine the benefits for the faith if they can get Marjorie to convert. I mean, she's the queen, first of all. So she has power in her own right. But she has power over Tommen. And the fact that the High Sparrow mentioned Tommen, he's been asking about you, he loves you. Um, he's aware. She could... She could have a lot of influence over the king. So if they, if the faith can get Marjorie in their camp, wow, that would be huge for them. Which would, in turn, cause conflict between Tommen and Cersei, which, you know, that would tear Cersei apart a lot because she's his only, that's his only, her only child left. And, you know, like we could say about Cersei, as, as bad as she is, she does have strong feelings for her children. And this would just be pretty bad for her. Do you think, Yoke Boy, there's a, a strong chance of conflict with the faith here between that's that involves Jamie and, and or rather Tommen and Cersei maybe having a falling out? And where do you think Jamie comes in with all this? Oh, it's very difficult, but I do like the idea that Marge, Marjorie converts and you know adds even more thickness to the plot. Jamie is not going to take well to the what the Faith are doing. Unlike in the books, Jamie and Cersei seem to be getting on pretty well at the moment, don't they? So you've got to bear that in mind. But I, I'm really unsure. Yeah, it does make a difference, and that could be a clue that he's not going to take well to the Faith. But I don't know where it's going to end up. <laughs> What about Sir Robert Strong? What do you think? That's another thing that's different from the books is that Jamie in the books doesn't even really know Sir Robert Strong is a thing. He was he he went to the Riverlands before any sort of <laughs> resurrection occurred before Kyburn was done with all that. So we should expect some sort of reaction though, right? At some point, of course, Marcella's death, you know, kind of takes the forefront. That makes sense. But at some point, Jamie's got to he's going to have to at least comment on this new member of his Kingsguard, right? Yeah, I actually found it quite funny. There's this really dark scene with Cersei, and, you know, it shouldn't be funny. But in the background, Robert Strong is stood there on his own. You, you know, this, this like, eight-foot undead giant kind of watching <laughs> over them. And uh, Jamie must have walked past and thought, who the hell is that in my king's card? <laughs> what has happened here? They can't just avoid it. He has to give give an opinion on Robert Strong at some point. And you would think that, you know, book Jamie would be rather appalled. Whether they just brush over it in the show, I don't know. Whether they don't want to spend time on that dynamic, that could be the case. I agree. It's it's kind of hard to say. They may just kind of give a quick explanation and then just move on from there. But it's there's more to it. There's more to this whole situation that needs to be divined, right? Um, it's true that... Yo, that um, Jamie is not aware of what happened to Marcella in the books. Of course, Marcella isn't dead in the book, but we kind of think she will be eventually. That's something where the book and show might converge. They may get to the same point by different routes. Because I think, do you guys agree that we kind of still expect Marcella to die in the books? Like, because of the Valencar prophecy and all that? Is, is, is that still our expectation? Yeah, I, I think for sure. I think the Valencar prophecy is a strong one. I think Mary... Maggie the Frog knew exactly what she was saying, and I think it's a common belief in the fandom that Marcella hasn't got a long way to go now. 
Yeah, got to agree with that. It's kind of funny, actually, in a not funny kind of way that typically a big injury like that means you're going to live on for a while. It means that you've got an arc like Jamie was horribly maimed and so is Theon. And it, it was almost plot armor because it meant that, you know, Jamie's not going to start his redemption arc and then just die halfway through it. And Theon, kind of the same way. But Marcella, nah, you're just going to get cut and then you're going to die. You know, it's going to get worse for you. So, no, nothing there. Yeah, it's kind of sad. <laughs> And what did you think, this, this deserves mention as well, just how strong Lena Headey's acting was in that scene, her facial expression. That may have been the most powerful moment in the, in the show, if not one of the top few. Lady Going, what did you think about that? Oh, I thought that was just absolutely fantastic, you know, and I, I watched it. I watched you guys talk about it in the, in your Monday episode, and I, I pretty much agreed you know, with a lot of the things you were saying there, uh, watched her face repeatedly and the acting, you know, to just watch her eyes kind of and see that moment when she realized, went from this pure joy to this kind of dawning comprehension, horror, and then just sadness, resignation, this whole realm of emotions. It's fantastic acting. You can't deny that Cersei loves her children. You mentioned it before. Book and show Cersei. Um, this kind of her redeeming feature. Um, so it was really pretty heartbreaking. And there was this poignant kind of juxtaposition between, um, Marcella, who's pure and good. And Cersei talks about, you know, how, how she was such a good, good little girl, a real golden child. And Cersei herself, um, which kind of shows a level of um, self-awareness that I don't think book Cersei has. <laughs> um, but the way where they've taken the character on the show, um, you know, you definitely have a lot more empathy. I agree. Um, yeah, you can see, and that's the thing we get to see inside Cersei's head in the books. And there's none of this. It's just all, you know, confusion and, and jealousy and, you know, paranoia. And all that. But to be fair, we haven't seen Marcella's death in the book yet. And maybe that will, that, those kind of things, if anything, have the impact, the power to change someone or at least get them to look at things differently. Maybe that will still happen for Cersei. But maybe not. What, what about the last thing I want to talk about with Cersei and Jamie? First of all, we're, at some point, Jamie's going to go to the Riverlands, I suppose. I don't know how this is all going to lead to that, though. I'm not really clear on how this conflict with the faith, which is more a primary, element to things right now more of a needs to be handled soon sooner rather than later somehow that's going to be resolved i guess and then jamie's going to go off again really not clear on how that's going to happen so if you all have thoughts on that feel free to send us an email or tweet at us at westeros history or contact us on facebook at facebook history of westeros so one last bit here as well. Um, I wanted to mention the situation with the Tyrells. Right now, Cersei seems to be... Nothing overt in those scenes showed us the issues they have with the Tyrells right now. It seems like the Tyrells have their own problems with Marjorie still being in, in the possession of the High Sparrow. Loras also there with more serious charges. Do you think that Cersei is going to realize now how badly she needs the Tyrells that she cannot afford to make an enemy of yet another major house, considering nearly all of them are in rebellion or plotting rebellion or not loyal at the very least? Or is this just more evidence of how 
of the what we expect to maybe see with conflict between Cersei and Tommen. Maybe if, if the faith is on with Tommen and Marjorie, Cersei's going to oppose that. It could just really get worse before it gets better. Any any thoughts on that? Do you think Cersei's going to continue to be self-destructive in that way, or maybe is she going to stop that the slide of losing allies? I think that, um, you know, obviously book Cersei would not, you know, she wouldn't stop. She's just going to go on being self-destructive, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, the, but this could be one of those, you know, the, one of those changes that they've made where it, it's possible she could come around with, with this knowledge because this really is kind of her the last straw she has to grasp at. Uh, if that comes about, I would expect the motivation may come from Jamie, who seems to be a bit more grounded in reality um books and show jamie so he could be the one that says you know look we really we really need them we're, we're otherwise we're all alone here against the rest of the realm and so uh, she's starting to believe in prophecies and things like that <laughs> yeah. that's that's a change although i guess she's kind of always feared this prophecy now she's just locked in the paranoia is just well in there now okay let's move on to dorn Okay, so Dorne, this is, this is what I was talking about at the beginning, how this is where we need to set aside our disappointment and some of the things that are just real head-scratchy at best, and try to figure out what it means for the books. Because even though it's not done well, even though there's some very strange, inexplicable things here, some of it makes a little more sense than it seems. Not that it makes sense, but it's maybe a little less nonsensical after, upon review, and... Setting us again, setting aside our feelings for what does it mean for the books? How can we tie these things together, if at all? Uh, it, in a sense, it's like if you take it from the book plot, it's like Darkstar just didn't miss his swing. He actually cut Marcella's head off or something. And it's the Sand Snakes getting what they wanted. Uh, so the, the, you can say the show Sand Snakes are a lot more successful than their book counterparts. And we speculated. In our Dane episode, House Dane Part 1, which we recorded back in December, I believe, we talked about characters like Darkstar and Arthur and these guys. Darkstar is a natural ally for the Sand Snakes, even though they took an oath to stay with Doran. And I do think that's the most likely thing, is that they hold to that oath mostly because of Ariane. Because they do genuinely love Ariane, and Ariane has now switched to being in Doran's camp. He's, she's no longer you know, trying to usurp her father. So I think the Sand Snakes are in line with that. But I have to think there's a possibility that what we're seeing is an extension of the Dark Star plot, him being more successful, but without actually having a Dark Star. It's like Alaria is Dark Star. But it still doesn't answer the question of who's going to rule Dorne. In the books, even if Doran is killed, which could happen, I wouldn't be surprised if Doran doesn't make it through... You know, the next book, he's an old man, he's he's failing. Someone could kill him, but he could just die. The Ariane is around. By the way, that's another good reason why they should have had Ariane in the show, it seems like. How not why not make her a younger sister of Tristane? Have the Sand Snake plot go off just like it did. Well, maybe with some other improvements, but effectively the same result. And put Ariane in charge. Then you still have a Martell. Right now we're sitting here with who's gonna rule Dorne? What's going on? Who is going to be in charge? I really don't know. So let's talk about that a bit. Yoke Boy, what do you think? What do you think that that this is they're just going to leave it like this with Ilaria in charge or It's hard to imagine Ilaria ruling Dawn, isn't it? But it's similarly tough to imagine any of the sand stakes 
ruling. It just, nothing seems to fit. I would guess that Ilaria would take charge, but it, it just it doesn't really make sense in... I, I mean, I don't know how they'll deal with it in the show. It just doesn't add up, and it certainly doesn't add up in the book world. It's one of those things where you hope that they explain it better and that it makes sense, but you don't have a lot of confidence because this plot line has been handled pretty poorly in general. And so you don't have to have... It's, there's not a lot of reason to have confidence in it. You wonder if this isn't just a way to kind of cut it off at the arm like an arm with grayscale. So, look, we screwed this plot up. We're just going to tie it up. This is the best thing we can do. It's better just to cut this arm off now rather than continue to let it rot and grow up the arm and poison the whole thing. That's a possibility. I have a bit of a crackpot theory. They're going to introduce Arthur Dane in the Tower of Joy scene, which is coming up in a future episode, probably fairly early in the season. Don't know exactly when. Well, I actually do, but I won't say. And I, I wonder if the introduction of Arthur allows them to either parallel introduce a Dane in the current storyline to be the new ruler of Dorne, and he could be like Darkstar. He could be kind of a dastardly figure. And I even, I take the crackpot even farther and think, well, what if they, to conceive, because you know how people are with that, with the casting news. People are all over that. Sites like Watchers on the Wall, highly recommended, by the way. They are just really, really in deep in these things, and they, they catch these little things. And it's hard to imagine they missed a Dornish Lord being cast. So importantly, what if it's the same actor as Arthur Dane? Possibility. They just reused him because he's playing a Dane in both cases. He'll look familiar. One, he's going to be wearing a helmet, so it's a little bit concealed. In the show, he comes out looking some other way. I don't know. I kind of doubt it, but I like throwing that idea out there. And but but frankly, with all the season trailers and previews and everything, there was no shots of Dorne at all. No shots of Dornish action really. Besides that ship sailing into King's Landing, I don't think we got anything. So there's my crackpot idea. I hope they tie it up that way. That would be cool. We get the Danes in the show. That would be nice. Besides just the Tower of Joy thing. But again, I can't say I have a lot of confidence in that. It's more fun to think about than it is to consider as a legitimate possibility. But hey, it's not, it's not completely impossible. Uh, Lady Gwen, tell us about the letter. The letter that Doran was looking at, which is now going to be the source of many, many memes from now on. Alexander Sadiq with a confused face looking at that short message is just fodder for a million different memes I've seen on the internet already. But what did that letter actually say? Okay, so um, they, we do have a photo of the actual prop. It's courtesy of the makingagamethrones.com website. And the letter actually is from Jamie telling Doran that Marcella was poisoned on their return journey and that he suspects Ilaria. He warns Doran that Cersei is going to demand war. He mentions um, that... Alaria's head and the sand snakes, you know, won't really compensate, uh, but it will be a start. So um, he's basically saying, at the very least, we expect you to execute all of them immediately. Uh, and he mentions that he's sending Tristane back to Dorne um, by the same ship. So uh, right there, I think once having that knowledge of what was on that prop um, did explain a few things, right? I mean... It's possible that maybe Ilaria had hoped for a more reactionary response from the Lannisters, such as kill Tristane and rush to war against Dorne. Uh, Which is reasonable. That is a reasonable... I mean, this is Cersei we're talking about. It's only because of Jamie's yeah. intervention that that didn't happen. I think that would very right. likely have happened. 
Oh yeah, if Cersei was in charge, that's absolutely, and and he, Jamie even recognizes that in the letter. So, um, it, it could explain why you know so why they hadn't acted yet, but it also implies that maybe some time had passed between Doran's death and then what we see of Tristane's, where in the obviously in the editing of the show you see Doran die, and then it cuts right to um, Tristane. But it, it, yeah, maybe I, I some time. I agree with that. It, it's like it makes it, there's still plenty wrong with it, but some of the, like for example, where did those sand snakes come from to kill Tristane? I don't actually have a big problem with that because everybody knows where they're gonna, where he's going to be. He's going to be in that ship. It's a big ship sitting in the harbor of Blackwater Bay near King's Landing. With a Martell sail on it. Everybody knows what the deal with that is. The Sand Snakes can just walk, sail up to that ship, climb aboard. They're recognizable as his cousins. They, there's no reason to think they're coming there to kill him. So they'd be like, oh, hey, Sand Snakes, come on aboard. You know, hey, we're here to see Tristane. Okay, go ahead. There's no, they wouldn't have to fight anyone to get past anyone. There'd be no commotion. Uh, it's the same reason Ilaria and Tyene were just sitting there with, uh, with Doran. It's because they're trusted now. It shouldn't have been, I guess. But they're trusted. So that I actually don't have a problem with, is except for that we it's not made clear. They should have made it more clear what was happening. And Tristane should have reacted more. He should have been like, why? Why are you doing this? He just was like, oh, we're fighting now. Yeah. <laughs> so, Here are my cousins. Let me get my sword. <laughs> <laughs> so there's our attempt to make something out of a mess there. And I think, I hope these explanations make it more palatable. It's still very problematic but it makes more sense than we thought and that's the value of setting aside your disgust and really taking a look at it maybe it wasn't worth it but it was for me because i like not hating it <laughs> i like i prefer being confused than hating it so this is still kind of confusing but yeah that's still an improvement as, as funny as that may sound okay another quick break and we'll be back to talk about essos Lots happening in Essos, multiple locations. It's almost like there's as many locations in Essos as there are in Westeros right now. That'll, of course, change in the long run, but for now, we've got quite a lot going on over there. Tyrion and Varys in Marine. There's an interesting little parallel here that I think was pretty nicely done. One of the complaints Ilaria made to Doran Martell as he's dying is that He's out of t you're out of touch with your people. You never left the palace. You didn't hear. You don't realize how disgusted they are with you and how much they want revenge for what was done to Elia and Oberyn, etc. And, of course, the beginning of this scene is Tyrion saying, we're not going to solve the city of Marine's problems from atop an 800-foot pyramid. So he gets what Doran didn't get in that sense. When you have a disenfranchised, unhappy population... It pays to get the story straight from the horse's mouth. And the only thing I didn't like about that, this is that I just do not buy those two being incognito. Whatever. That's just, that's what they chose to do. There's a couple of things they could have done to maybe make it more sense, but we won't dwell on that. Uh, it's just, I'll just make that complaint and leave it there. But we can also guess that since Tyrion's following this advice, about, or his own advice, or following a smart plan to learn about the people of Marine. He won't be murdered by Ilaria. <laughs> so, good job, Tyrion. But he could be no murdered by a number of other people because of this whole, you know, he's too recognizable. Book Tyrion could definitely not pull this off. <laughs> he's one of the most recognizable fe people there is. And people would, everyone who sees him for the first time wouldn't fail to forget him. Like, white-haired dwarf with mismatched eyes, no nose, <laughs> all that. You cannot forget that. You, there's, no, there's nobody like Tyrion. 
So what do you yeah what do you guys think about that? Do you are you do you kind of agree? Was that a little maybe too inconspicuous or or am I taking that a little too far? No, hardly inconspicuous. Uh, you've got a tall <laughs> a tall bald eunuch and a dwarf speaking the common tongue in a in a foreign city where nobody <laughs> speaks that language. <laughs> yeah, at least wear a hood, guys. Come on. I, I can try exactly. <laughs> like, like you're not even really trying. Uh, um, and maybe they, and maybe they showed that t- they were showing us that Tyrion was was a little too confident because we do see this person like watching them from the windows, and maybe that's they were a little showing that maybe Tyrion isn't. It's not that the showrunners made this mistake; it's that Tyrion is overconfident, and there's it's his mistake, the character's mistake, not 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 bad writing. I prefer to think that. But what's more interesting is Varys deploying his little birds in Marine. Which is interesting. He ex- he's got a lot of confidence that they will root out the sons of the harpy. I tend to agree. Varus is rather good at this, but it may not be as simple as he thinks. I don't know that they want to spend a lot of time on that, though. I think they want to kind of move the plot along. I think the sons of the harpy are on their way out as a point of interest, but but they've probably got a few things left to do. More of more interest and of more note to the later storylines, I think, is Danny's waning popularity with the Miranese, which may be a segue to her having to leave, maybe a, a kick in the butt to go to Westeros. This red priest riling people up, telling them to stand up for themselves. Tyrion remarks that it's a problem. What did you guys think about the ships being burned? I thought it was, it's kind of a, I almost wonder if it's a meta decision. Like they brought those ships into the storyline with just one line from Dario saying, I captured the Miranese ships. And now just as casually, well, we see them burning and that was kind of a nice shot. They're gone. I, do you, you think there's any chance this was a change of plan for them? They originally planned to use those ships and they were like, no, you know, we should use the Greyjoys after all. Let's bring Euron and those guys in. You think that's maybe what happened or maybe is this just, Something else? Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Either either that or they just plan to have this neato ship-burning scene all along. But otherwise, I mean, why mention them so casually last year and then now burn them? Uh, it's obvious setup for a Greyjoy fleet to come. And, yeah, really. <laughs> you know, so, because... Oh, we can't get back to Westeros now. There's our ships burning. Oh, unless some Westerosi <laughs> ships just happen to show up. <laughs> so. Guess that'll happen. So, yeah. So that's another setup plot right there. There's not necessarily a whole lot to go on yet. Like a lot of these plots, it's there's, there's a lot of setup. We're gonna we're we're starting down a new path, but we are not really sure where it's going yet, and we'll have to do wait and see. So we'll move on for now. Speaking of Dario, though, we'll talk about Jorah and Dario. Probably not any real surprises in this scene. It's another setup scene, although I really do not have any inkling for how the heck Jorah and Dario plan on getting Daenerys out of a Kalasar. I guess the simple answer is they won't, that it'll be Drogon that does it. But what, so what that leaves the question, what's going to happen to Jorah and, and Dario? I really don't know. I think Danny is safe, of course. That kind of removes some of the tension from this plot line, but not all. Jorah, frankly, probably. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Do you think Jorah is going to make it through this? Do you think it's the grayscale means there's more to do with him? Yeah, I think grayscale plot armor. He's got it. Because um, you know, <laughs> like he, Jamie being in Theon having these horrible right. His horrible. So he's got, obviously got some other thing that's going to happen to him. They keep taking the time in the, you know, previously on 
Um, they showed him looking at his arm. He yeah. takes the time in the scene with Dario to stop and just look at his arm, and you see that it's a little bit bigger now. So they're obviously reminding us about it. It's it's something that's going to be developed going yeah. forward. So he's probably safe from whatever Dothraki or whatever's going to happen. Yeah, and they and they brought up grayscale at the wall with with uh, Gilly taking similar lines to Val. Val being telling John how the wildlings do not let kids with grayscale live, saying that it sleeps. And since that, they included that little hint drop in at the wall. I think you're right. It means big things are coming for grayscale. So for now, Jorah doesn't have to worry about the the, the Dothraki, but maybe they need to worry about him. Touching him, that is. Don't touch the gray bear, the stone bear. So, if anyone's wearing the Star Trek red shirt in this plotline, it's Dario. Dario's the one who may not have much left to do. And he's got that kind of fatalist. I sure hope I live to see what the world looks like after Danny conquers it. Or rather, he says, if you, Jorah says, if you live to be that old. He says, yeah, I hope I do. I want to see what the world looks like after she conquers it. Oh, he's dead meat, I think. Yeah, he's dead meat. Yeah, right? That's so, that's. <laughs> Don't say something like that. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't, you, you can't say that <laughs> and expect to not be killed. You have to say things like, I'm going to be dead soon. I'm surely going to die in the next scene. That's how you live. You know, you have to have a dollarous ed attitude of, of fatalism because that keeps you alive. <laughs> So that's all we have for that plot line. You know, I think there weren't a lot of surprises there. And mostly we're just going to wait and see. So we'll wait and see. Watch out Dario, though. Let us know your thoughts on that, everybody. Do you think we're, you agree with us maybe that Dario is one of the most likely characters to get it soon? So let's talk about Daenerys and Kyle Morrow. Yoke Boy, let's, we haven't heard from you in a minute. Go ahead and take us away on this scene. Okay, Danny begins... Right back at the start of her arc, she began as a slave of sorts, being sold to the Dothraki, and she's now completely disempowered once again, treading a very familiar path, I think. This is another chapter on the theme of slavery in this story, and if this goes down in the books, George will probably be looking to reduce Danny as much as possible before she once again finds power. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a kind of pendulum of power swinging all the way through Danny's story where she gets power, then she loses it. And that's repeated. And I think this is another repetition of that. And I did look through uh, Danny's last chapter to see if there's any kind of correlations. And I've got a quote here that mentions go it being taken to the Dosh Kaleen as an option when she sees that first scout when she's on the Dothraki Sea. It says, one rider and alone, a scout. He was one who rode off before the Kalasar to find the game and the good green grass and sniff out foes wherever they might ride. If he found her there, he would kill her, rape her or enslave her. At best, he would send her back to the crones of the Dosh Kaleen where good Khaleesi was supposed to go when their calls had died. Yeah, so that is a parallel to what a lot of us expected. Some would say Drogon is the reason the Dothraki don't outright kill Daenerys, but her status as a widow of a call is what truly keeps her alive, even more so, because it's a religious thing for them. And that's what, you know, even barbarian warlord, horse lord 
dangerous, violent cultures like this have things that they respect, and that typically is their religious beliefs. That's the thing they respect most besides strength. And, well, frankly, Daenerys showed some strength as well. It was kind of nice that she stood up to Kyle Morrow. And I think it was interesting that she waited till out of all the threats she made, she didn't want to tell him. It seemed like she saved the Dosh Kelly. She was hoping she could, you know, talk her way out of it. And then finally she admitted she was the husband of Khal Drogo. Uh, because she, I think she knew admitting that would mean exactly what did happen was that he would say, oh. Now you're going to the Dutch Colleen, which is what she did, wanted to avoid. She thought maybe she could barter with him, you know, offered him horses, which is reasonable. But, yeah, but he, because the order of things was that he, she did all her lines, all her queen, I'm queen of this. Which, by the way, was nice that she included queen of the Roinar in there. That was new. Uh, that Roinar, I don't know that they'd been mentioned at all prior to that, but it was cool to have that thrown in there. One of her many titles. So, it was right after what I thought was Kal Morrow's best line. You are queen of nothing, millionth of your name, slave to Cal Morrow. It was a pretty good comeback, uh, but he was became just his attitude changed so much when she mentioned that she is uh, a widowed Khaleesi. So I almost think she was holding on to that and say, saying it only because she had to, because she knew what his reaction would be. So that's another wait and see. We know Drogon's going to show up, but right now this plotline is just getting started and we don't have a lot more we can say about it yet so let's move on to things that we do say more about for example let's talk about bravos i appreciated the detail of the square coin being going into the as the you know the, into the begging bowl there that was cool and aria over here is chatter if you had the subtitles on you really noticed this if you didn't maybe you caught uh, caught some talk about it or you heard it i highly recommend going back if you didn't Arya overhears people talking about Marin's death. They hear, oh, well, with that Kingsguard death, I'm not taking any chances. And you don't, uh, you don't know exactly what they're talking about, but it's clear that word got out. I think that's what we're, what we're hearing there is that news of a Kingsguard dying in a brothel is all over town. And that's exactly what the faceless men don't want. They don't want this kind of thing. They don't want news getting out. They don't want their people going rogue. Do you think that they left her out there not telling her that they were going to come and train her some more. Did you think that maybe she felt completely abandoned? I got that impression, but I wasn't sure if I was right. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I do. I think um, she certainly appeared very hopeless and confused, lost-looking, um, and surely didn't expect the the wave to appear there in that moment. So. Yeah. <laughs> This is a tricky plot line, too, to deal with in this point, because it is one of the, it's maybe the only one. I haven't sat down and, and, and analyzed this specifically, but most of the plot lines, the show is past the book plot line. This is not the case here. We have some parts of it are in a different order, but this blind plot line of her being the blind girl, that's, you know, in the books, that's past. She's got her sight back. And instead, you know, we, again, like I didn't want to talk about Theon, because I don't want to spoil people on the T-Wow spoiler chapters if you've decided to avoid those, I will say that the Mercy chapter, which we have an episode on a while ago, I guess that's more than two years old, deals with Arya's arc and T-Wow, and there's some parallels there, and that might be where the rest of her season arc is going in a loose way. But again, this is more setup. Arya's still training. She's still in that training kind of zone, learning to be more of a badass. And for now, we're kind of waiting for that to develop. 
So we're waiting for that to develop. It's another plot line that's just getting started. Well, I guess it's kind of similar, picking up where it left off last season. Still, she's still training. She's still trying to become a faceless man. But there's some doubts whether she'll fully commit to that because of Needle being stashed away. And she still has her list and all that. I think I'm not alone in this. Do you guys agree that Arya's never going to fully commit to those to, to the faceless men's way of life? She's going to continue to have her wolf side, and that's ultimately going to win out? Definitely. Um, it's so broadly telegraphed that she's not losing her Stark identity. She's not becoming no one. She's not doing what they really want. Um, yeah. She's incorrigible. <laughs> she's Arya Stark. She would have been hit by a ruler a lot if she went to a Catholic parochial school. Yeah, probably. Her her link with her link with her wolf is something innate, isn't it? I think it's impossible for her to become no one. It's she can't shake it. It's not her choice. She has wolf dreams. They're there and it all ties into this dark identity, as Lady Gwyn said. Yeah, and she's even having the cat visions in the books too. She's seeing through that cat and, and that helps her deal with being blind when she's still blind, but by the Dance with Dragons, she gets her sight back. So, let's talk about the episode as a whole a little more. We started with that, and we'll move on to that again, and talk about a few other things, and then we'll do our credits, and then after the credits, remember, we're going to talk about what's coming next, a couple of spoilery things that we saved, because we, we didn't think everyone wanted to hear these things, some people like to remain virgin going into each episode only knowing book stuff and stuff that happened in the episode they don't want to know about all the spoilers so let's talk about that we did a poll on twitter it was best actress in episode one of season six and best actor in episode one of season six i'll run through that real quick and then you guys give me your answers the winner by a landslide for best actress was cersei with 42 percent of the vote beating sansa melisandre and brienne of course, Twitter only allows four choices, so I couldn't include all the people I wanted to. I didn't include Arya. I figure Arya's going to get more chances to be nominated. She'll still be blind in the next episode or two, and she'll still be doing her thing. So she'll have a chance. She'll get in there later, maybe. What did you guys think? Who was your pick for top actress? So that's Lena Headey. I'm not, Cersei is not the actress's name, obviously. Lena Headey, great job there. What did you guys think? Would you agree with Lena, or would you pick something else? Or somebody else? Okay, I, I think I would agree with Lena, but I would have an honor, honorable mention for Maisie. I know it was only a short slot, but I was watching her when she was, you know, doing the fighting and stuff, and she was very convincing as a blind girl. I thought it was really good. Cool. All right, Lady Gwen, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, definitely Lena. Um, I thought, you know, I'd say a, uh, second place for um, Carice, actually, because she did, even though... She wasn't actually acting in that final, final scene, um, although it was her face. Uh, she did a great job in her brief scenes prior to that, but uh, Lena just had more more range, you know, more opportunity to show a great range there. Cool. All right, so Best Actor in Episode 1. The nominees were... I screwed this up a bit. I thought long and hard about who to include, and at the last second, I took Davos off the list for Jamie, and I wrote Other as the fourth choice, Tell Us Who, and... Davos may have won just through the write-in vote. That's how popular he was. But as it is, other turned out 35%. And some people nominated Alfie Allen as well. Which So this was a tough choice. There were too many nominees. But the winner was Alistair Thorne. 36% of the vote. 
beating 35% others. So maybe if I had made Davos a choice, he would have won. So we'll, we'll call it a tie between Alistair and Davos. Jamie and Ramsey farther behind, but I thought those guys both deserve notice because Jamie had to be severe and grave and, and had to do some real acting. Same with Ramsey showing his range a bit and probably won't see a lot of that from him because the character doesn't call for that. What do you guys think? Who was your favorite best actor in episode one? I think I'll go with your voters and say, you know, it's tied between uh, Davos and Alice of Thorne. I'm not sure of the actor's name for Alice of Thorne. Uh, sorry about that. Owen Teal. Owen Teal. Yeah, he, he was good. Yeah. He did, You know, he had a good speech and everything. Yeah, he did. Kind of reminded me of his, his pre-battle speech. It was, that was another great moment for him. He was rallying the Night's Watch. Lady Gwynn, what did you think? Do you, you, you agree with Alistair or do you have a different pick? I would... Again, I would probably agree. I agree with Alistair, but I would have an honorable mention for for a very small thing, and that is for um, something I already mentioned: is that great facial acting by Ewan Rey in in, um, in that exchange with with uh, Bruce. They use that that um, some of his facial acting is one of the main trailer points. That scene where he turns around, they use that in the trailers a lot. <laughs> yeah, I was fine. I was like, it's "There's great. where it came it's from." <laughs> So we'll have another poll for something next week. We'll try to do polls as part of these reviews this season. Those are fun. Good way for you all to participate and tell us what you think. And it's a good thing to talk about. I like talking about... Remember that as book readers, some of us kind of... Even when we are openly positive about the show, it's hard to not get a little book snobby from time to time. So I think it's important to keep in mind the things about the show that set it apart from the books in a good way. And acting is one of those great ways. Cersei's facial acting, there's just nothing like that in the books. You can't, no matter how, you can be the best writer of all time, and you cannot do that. You can write beautiful prose. You can make it clear how haunted she is, how painful this moment is. But there's just nothing like seeing it. It's just a whole different experience. So I really think that this is one of the things that the show really can hit hard with these things. There was a lot of emotional moments in that show. There was also a lot of eye-rolling, right? <laughs> but I almost feel like you got to judge the show plot line to plot line. You know, it's like, well, Dorne is, is a, you know, a D, or some people will give it an F, F or F minus, or maybe it's a C after we explain some things. Maybe it's improved to a C or C minus. Whereas some of the other scenes, I give them an A, A plus in some cases. It's really, I mean, Dorne has nothing at all to do with the wall. They're not even indirectly connected. <laughs> There's not even, like, parallels to draw, <laughs> except for maybe the infighting. And that's, you know, that's happening everywhere. It's not even unique to those two. So it's almost more appropriate to to judge separately rather than trying to look at every plot line. And, and how do you combine your, your disgust for one plot line with your love for another and come up with an overall vote? It's almost not the right... I think it's almost the wrong way to approach it. So, but that said... On a skit, we'll do this for fun this season since we didn't do this last year, but we'll give on a one to ten, we'll give our votes for what we thought of this episode as much as it is maybe a difficult thing to do, trying to figure out how all these things line up. And we'll, by the end of the season, maybe we'll have decided what our favorite episode was and maybe we'll have changed our mind on a few things. So I'll start to make it easier for you guys. I will give this episode We'll, 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 we'll go half points are okay. No point, no 7.7, but 7.5 is okay. I'll give this one a 7.5. The Doran stuff dragged down a bit. Most of everything else I liked a lot. There were some flaws, surely, but acceptable flaws. TV, standard TV flaws. I can usually accept those. What do you guys think? 
Out of 10? Rating of 1 to 10. Yeah. Maybe a 6.5? I'm I'm, I'm a hard marker, though, so maybe our scores (laughs) equate. (laughs) (laughs) And Lady Gwen, what about you? I'm going 7.5 too. Like points off for Dorn and you know a couple a couple other minor things and maybe in the um, in the King's Landing. Beautiful scenery but in this episode, I thought. Really, and it's it's it's, yeah. it's kind of shows how much the budget has grown and how they're putting that to use. Good music too. This is something else that is always has been strong throughout. I think, but. It's important to point these things out because sometimes when you you know you, we we look at the things to be critical about is because our, our first thing is to think about the books and that's natural I totally understand that instinct it's it's my instinct too but when we take a step back and try to appreciate the things that are there that aren't in the books a lot of them look pretty good so that's my uh, that's my staying positive there I'll, I'll I'll keep that up all season as much as I can <laughs> so worry of the week it's a little premature for a worry of the week. Because so many of these plot lines are just getting started, but it's not entirely too early. I guess you could say from what we talked about this episode that Dario and Rickon are our biggest worries so far. Do you guys have any other characters you're particularly worried about, or is that is that kind of where we're at at the moment? I'm a bit worried in the future about what Davos does when he finds out about Shireen, you know. Not, not at this point. I'm not saying next episode or anything like it, but in the long, long view... I'm a bit worried about uh, Melisandre via Davos. That's a great point. We didn't talk about that, but the fact that Melisandre or that Davos is not aware of how Shireen died. He assumes she's dead. Maybe there's a part of him wonders if she's a captive of the Boltons, which would make him want to, you know, would give him even more impetus to try to, you know, take action against them. But yeah, he does not know. And that will, I do agree with you, that will change his attitude and it might get violent. Lady Gwyn, what about you? What do you think? Who's in danger? I I definitely think uh, Dario Rickon. Uh, good point about da- um, well, not Davos, but Mel. Yeah. Um, I guess we're not worried about Alistair, but he's probably. In yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yeah, I'm not worried about any other person specifically, but uh, yeah, I think some of those Nights Watchmen are. What about Dolores Ed? I didn't even consider him until just now. Do you think he's going to make it out of this? Maybe he'll get out of there with Davos? Or is this the the end of... They actually use the name Dolores Ed. I think that's the first time we heard the ty- him given his full name. I think he was mm-hmm. just Ed before. Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure of that. but yeah. I guess I'm a little worried about him now that I think about it. I mean, he could make it. He, he survived Hard Home. Uh, <laughs> he survived John's assassination so far. He's a survivor, but... Yeah, I don't know. They could. Uh, they could do away with him, I suppose, for uh, for the fields at any time. But uh, yeah, mm. I hope not. I, I like Dolores Ed a lot, but yeah. that's what we get for liking characters. Right. We should predict his death because that will keep him alive. Dolores Ed is doomed. He's <laughs> definitely gonna die. That will. That's my reverse psychology. Okay, so I want to thank. Radio Westeros, first of all, for joining us. Tell everybody where to find you guys. And hey, also speak to your latest episode, a character that we haven't seen yet, but we're sure to see soon. Good timing on doing an episode on him. I think there, we're going to see a lot from him this season. What do you think? Or, or rather, what do you you can answer that question. What do you think we're going to see a lot about him while you're telling us about that episode? 
Yeah, come to RadioWesteros.com to listen to our podcast, or we've got a YouTube channel, Radio Westeros, and we'd love to see some new subscribers. Come and see if you like us, give us a try. And our latest episode is a two-parter on Littlefinger, where we try and unpack his uh, his uh, devious financial behaviour and so on. And yeah, I would hope to see him in next episode. I think that... It's about time, isn't it? I can't remember which episode he we last saw him in. I think it was episode seven or eight or nine. He definitely wasn't in the last one. I think his last scene was was his was his talk with Olena, and that was the that was the end. Yeah, I expect uh, yeah a part two of of our Littlefinger episodes. Uh, we talk a lot about where we think he's going, and I think um, that will probably be the most relevant to this particular show season. See if there's any intersection or if they take him off in a whole different direction yeah and i think that's a really big subject you guys tackled like little finger I, I, we did a virus episode and it was really hard because of how impenetrable his thinking and his plans are little fingers cut from that same cloth i remember how hard that was for us so i i definitely two thumbs up for the effort there and i thought it was a, a great pair of episodes obviously i've listened to them myself i like them a lot so highly recommend it also, thanks to Ashea for producing and directing and helping with all things technical and writing as well. So lots of things going on in the background that is not so clear to everybody watching and listening. And thanks to Joey Townsend for the music. It's too bad we can't put our cool new video intro in these, in these episodes. The problem with that is we're trying to, we record directly to YouTube because we're using a webcam. And we want the episode to be up as fast as possible because of the time-sensitive nature of these episode reviews. Can't use our cool new camera. Otherwise, it would take another full day of encoding and uploading YouTube. That's just the way it is when you put these long videos up. But if we record directly to YouTube, it's there already, and we can post it quickly. So I'm sure a few of you are wondering about that. There's the explanation. Thanks to our Patreon supporters who make all these technical improvements possible and allow us to devote so much time to Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, and History of Westeros podcast in general. First Lord Cash Craig is, hand, is our Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers, the Black Pupil, and proud owner of one of these lovely Michael Klarfeld maps with the lovely George R. R. Martin signature on it as well. So that is a powerful artifact in his control now. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars of Politics at Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West. Looking forward to meeting you at Balticon, my friend. Lord George Storesville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge is the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North and Warden of the North. Currently without a Warden of the South. Rory the Rogue, Archer Extraordinaire and King Beyond the Wall. His efforts to conquer the Valley of the Fens continue. They are a hardy and tough people, but the Southern Valley has been taken. Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers. We have Lord Robert Jacobs as our Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever of Master of Laws, and Lord James Tuttle as our Master of Ships. Lady Dire Liz of Castle Naki is our Alf Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gabethian Frozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Jeffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake, Lord Grey Bay of the Queen City. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is Lord of Devil's Head Keep. 
Lord Brandon Slate is the Norse Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lady Bram is Light of Winter's Garden, Beacon of the Northwest. Also, King's Justice Sir, Tr Sir Troy the Steady, my pronunciation not so steady, of, is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Also, thanks to Lord Commander Shepard of our Kingsguard and Lord Commander George the Golden of our History of Westeros Night's Watch, assisted by First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield. If you want a cool title like that, or to support the show in general, sign up at www.patreon.com slash historyofwesteros, or just go to our website. If you want to make a straight PayPal donation, you don't want to get involved with signing up for anything, just make keep it simple. We're obviously fine with that. And if you want to help the show out in a non-financial way, hey, we, re we had to change our iTunes feed several months ago. That meant we lost all the reviews we had before. So if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, we could really use that. That would really help. You'd be surprised how much that matters. Also, you can subscribe and tell your friends on YouTube. There's a lot of ways to help out the show. We're also on SoundCloud. It's all good. So help us any way you can. We appreciate it. So let's talk about what we learned from the Episode 2 trailer. First of all, we have strong, pun intended, evidence of that conflict between Cersei and Tommen. Which is, we see a scene of Lannister guards, and we all know what Lannister guards look like. They have that distinctive kind of crimson armor with the face, the eye holes, and the lower face not covered. A whole group of them facing down Cersei and Sir Robert Strong. What's going on there? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, the one leader says, you know, sorry, sorry to Cersei, sorry, King's orders. So I think definitely, um, Strong indication that there's a conflict. Uh, where is she trying to go? Your guess is as good as mine. But yeah, some, maybe some... Tommen made a decision that she wants to talk to him about, and if he won't let her talk to him, or she, yeah, then she's gonna have to force her way in. Uh, yeah, we also see the guard Robert Strong take like a step forward, and the, and the lead Lannister kind of take a step back. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Robert Strong could take out all those guys. And there were like 12 to 15 or 20 of them. It was kind of a narrow passageway, so they wouldn't be able to like get around him. And even if they could, would it matter? The guy is probably not so easy to damage. No, one swing of that great sword and you'd probably take them all. At least half of them. <laughs> I know, Yoke Boy, you're as excited as me to see him in action at long last. You guys also have an episode on him and Kyburn, and I, I recommend that one as well. Yeah, I can't wait for Robert Strong. I just want to see, <laughs> you know, how powerful he is. I've got to say, guys, I didn't see this um, coming next week. So I might be a bit useless on some of these, but you can talk to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can give your opinion after you hear what we have to say. Yeah, about yeah. <laughs> now, we also have a scene of Sansa and Brienne discussing Arya. So that's interesting. That that kind of justifies something we talked about before, about what Sansa's going to be doing once she thinks she's safe and when she's, you know, maybe feels protected. She can afford to send Brienne out to do things. It makes sense to send her to the Riverlands. That's the last place she was seen. But obviously we know she's not actually there. But maybe she will be by the time Brienne gets there. Because we got to think Arya's coming to Westeros at some point, right? But but when is up in the air. You, you almost think that Mace Tyrell is going to leave leave Bravos pretty soon. Kind of based on what happened with those rumors. His Kingsguard knights killed. He's probably not excited about hanging around Bravos. He wants to find out what's happening with his daughter and her trial etc. So 
I almost feel like she's gonna he's gonna head back sooner, and that won't leave room for Arya to go with him. So he'll be it'll be some other means for her to return to Westeros. So you guys have any thoughts on that, or is that just kind of a too early to tell situation? She could come back with an acting troupe, you know. I, I don't know your spoiler policy, so I won't go any further. No, it's fine. After now that we're after the credits, you can go ahead with that. So beware, anyone who doesn't. We're going to talk a little bit about the Mercy chapter here, just a little bit. So if you don't want to hear that, sorry, but you should sign off now. Otherwise, stick with us. Uh, yeah, she she could see an acting troupe somewhere down the line, and they're going back to Westeros, and she gets involved, which would be a kind of bastardization of the Mercy plot. But it, you know, sometimes that's how they move the plot along in in the TV show, isn't it? They kind of take elements of what's the books are about and patch it all together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I do think that's only Lady Gwyn, did you have thoughts on that too? No, I think, uh, you know, that that seems fairly plausible. Um, otherwise. Or it's option C, option neither C. of the above, something we haven't thought of. You know, yeah. Who knows? We'll, we'll find out. Maybe she just sticks around Bravos and Danny swings by and picks her up. That seems very <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about the Boltons. They talk, there's a chat between them that seems like there's some sort of conversation about they're discussing the defenses of Castle Black or lack thereof. And there's a line, we know where she's going. They're obviously talking about Sansa. So this brings us even closer to the thoughts of maybe some sort of pink letter thing. But here's where it gets even more interesting, even more evidence for some sort of pink letter idea happening in the show. There's a preseason trailer that had a line from Ramsey saying, Winterfell is mine, come and see. That sounds exactly like the kind of taunting in the pink letter. It would be, he would be sending that to John or Sansa, or a, it sounds like something you'd say to a Stark or somebody with Stark loyalties. Hmm. There's also this really chilling line that he gives in one of the preseason trailers saying, do you like games, little man? God, that scares me for Rickon so badly. And if you look at the description for episode three this season, one of the lines is Ramsey gets a gift. If Ramsey's with the, if Ramsey, if the Umbers are with Ramsey and the Umbers have Rickon, they might just turn him over to Ramsey. And that is not good news for Rickon or Stark fans in general. So looks bad, doesn't it? Fingers are crossed that we're, our analysis is wrong, but mm, it's hard to get around this evidence. That would be one hell of a shaggy dog story. <laughs> <laughs> oh man Poor that is a good pun and yeah. by a good pun I mean bad pun which is the best kind of pun Yeah. so that is a situation is fraught with peril for some of our favorite characters Davos is maybe out there helping the anti-Bolton forces as well but we don't get anything we don't have anything new on him from this preseason trailer but we do have a little bit from Jamie and the High Sparrow now our cynical Jamie coming back into things. Our cynical, dangerous Jamie. The look he gives the High Sparrow in this moment where he's holding this little dagger and, and the High Sparrow says, you would spill blood in this holy place? And Jamie's response is something to the effect of the gods spill more blood than the rest of us combined. That was a line also from the preseason trailers. Apparently that's coming in episode two. So clearly Cersei and Jamie versus the Faith is happening. I can't see Jamie just killing the High Sparrow right there like that, but I guess there's a chance that happens. That would be, I really don't think so though, because I'm pretty sure he appears in some, there's some shots of him later in later trailer scenes that, that, that almost certainly come after episode two. But 
he really looks deadly in that. His face, his, his facial acting, man, he looks like he's ready to kill that guy. Uh, any thoughts on that, or is this just more evidence for kind of what we've what, what we've already talked about? We expect to see coming. I think so. I think um, the the just the HBO description says Jamie advises Tommen. And I'm not really sure maybe, what... Maybe Tommen doesn't take his advice, maybe. Right. <laughs> Could be. He's trying to convince him uh, against something, some course of action that he's taking that's, uh, you know, against the Lannister interests, I, I would guess, or at least against Jamie's and Cersei's interests. So. so is Jamie going to have to do a walk of shame? <laughs> a lot of women are hoping for that right now after you've suggested it. They're like, oh. yeah, give us that. <laughs> he wouldn't need a stunt body, probably. That would be in keeping with the, you know, the whole thing. Amelia Clark has started this kind of movement for more male media. Yeah. Game, so. <laughs> a game of schlongs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk. What I was about to say is that this next episode is entitled Home. I kind of wonder what that means. I guess there's a lot of like often these titles have multiple implications. Um, one of the parts of the description we see is that the Night's Watch is standing with Thorn. Um, we kind of saw that already. He was convincing to the few people who were calling him a murderer. It seemed like his speech was effective, even though a lot of us didn't buy it. The Night's Watch seemed to. So that means the there's almost certainly going to come things are going to come to a head. Maybe the Wildlings. That prediction looks pretty strong. But we also have mention of Balon. Balon entertains other proposals, is what the episode description says. What other proposals? Who who's someone who's proposing things to him? I have no idea. You guys have any thoughts on that? That's a very curious line. Other than the fact that we know Balon Greyjoy will be in the next episode, which we knew was going to bound to happen. Does any any thoughts on that? That's a really curious line. Well, it says what precedes that is Ramsey. Bolton proposes a plan, and then it says Balon entertains other. So it's unclear if those two things are related or if they're just part of a list. But um, could I don't know? Could Ramsay be trying to reach out and forge some sort of alliance with the Ironborn? Uh, that would be interesting. No, no, you know, remembering that they might not be aware that he um, that Ramsay doesn't have Theon anymore. So. Yeah, and he and and he killed the the Theon's men and he killed the men at Mount Kalen, but that doesn't necessarily that didn't necessarily get back to to Balon. He doesn't necessarily know that. And that's a small thing in the scheme of things in terms of rebellion and and him trying to working on a you know on the on the high stage of of big politics, you know, a few soldiers dead isn't a huge deal, but you know, with this much on the line. But this could be when Euron shows up. I don't know. Uh, maybe that maybe that happens a little later. I've really been wondering when that's going to happen. We know it's going to happen, but the how and the when. Whether I guess we'll see Yara next episode, most likely. So that's cool. We haven't seen her in a while. Another thing we're told is going to happen is that Tyrion demands good news, but has to make his own. And we see another scene that was shown in the preseason trailers that's now apparently going to happen. Episode two is. Tyrion goes to see the dragons, and I guess they get out, maybe? Now, so this is this is fraught with peril here. We have a fear, or hope, mostly a fear, that, that Tyrion will not be burned by a dragon flame, and this will reveal that he's a secret Targaryen, which would be kind of an awkward way to do that. But <laughs> ironically, 
a more devastating fear that he is burned by dragon flame and that's just the end of him because him dying is what nobody wants i'm pretty sure he we don't want him to become quentin but uh so i just hope that he's not burned at all there's no burning there's no resisting of the burning or the burning for real so yeah do you guys agree with that you think it's just the most likely thing is that he just Goes down there, messes with the dragons, and they get out somehow. Yeah, I, I think it's probably clever editing, you know, and to make a good trailer, to make it look like there's some sort of dragon flame engulfing Tyrion. But uh, hopefully that is not the way they play it out. And because I, I, he's got to survive, so if, if they have him burned, then it's going to be, that, you know, fireproof. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be no. Please uh, no. Please don't make now, Tyrion fireproof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I don't think they'll do the Tyrion Targaryen thing in the show. Let alone, I mean, it may not even be true in the book. It's probably not true in the books. I consider it a viable theory because the evidence supports it, and you can't eliminate it. Not because I think it's going to happen. I still think it's kind of a long shot. But let's assume it is true. Let's let's assume the long shot is real. That doesn't mean they have to do it on the show. They could do a different thing. They haven't really talked about dragon blood and and needing to be part targaryen to right that hasn't really been raised as an issue it's kind of like the whole john being a warg thing it's just not in the show at all so they don't they're not which is a good thing in a sense because they're not bound to it they don't have to play by those rules and they can do which means they can keep more mystery around it in the because frankly in the books if you believe in this whole you got to have some sort of proper genetics or something to ride a dragon that really really limits the options and it's almost you can narrow down the three heads of the dragon to about three or four names well you know danny's one of them clearly so the other two slots there's really not many options in the show some of the options we have for the books aren't even in the in the show like young griff slash egg on the sixth he's a he's a candidate to ride a dragon but he's 99.9 percent not going to be in the show so I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting to consider, compare the two book and show canons with regards to dragon riders, because I doubt they'll make huge changes there. That's one of those things that I expect will be very similar, like the actual people who ride dragons. Are they really going to change that? That seems like a big thing to change. But they could change it, you know, just out of necessity or because they don't have Aegon and he's one of the ones they were going to use for that. So, uh, Well, they've pretty much narrowed it down to, of the possibilities from the books three people in, in the show so um i think that i you, would you say to danny Tyrion, and and john or not john well i mean john's definitely a candidate in the books isn't he because yeah because of tar, you know targaryen blood and all. but and so yeah i mean i can't think of who else is left in the show i don't necessarily think it would be john in the books but in the show i, I can't think of who else they would have besides those three so. Well, here Dario. Dario. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask one more question to you guys. Get your take on this. I think I think a lot of people out there want to know how we feel about this, and it is, well, what do we expect about John's resurrection? Assuming that's going to happen, the timing of it. Uh, it's, it's from some news leads us to believe that the Tower of Joy scene will be episode three, though Bran will be appearing in episode two. So they're going to start us back on the Bran track 
get some some dreams, some visions, maybe show how he's coming along, maybe see how tied he is into the tree. We also see a shot of Mira sitting out in the snow, kind of looking lonely, lost, confused. Uh, not lost in the where the hell am I sense, but like aimless kind of. Um, so that's interesting. Well, I guess we'll see a little bit of that. But apparently the Tower Joy scene is going to be episode three. So do you think that's when John will come back? Uh, right around that same time? Because that's going to sh- reveal to the viewers who his parentage is. I think that's when they're going to, uh, presumably that will come together. Is that, you think that's a good guess? Episode three, or maybe, maybe it'll be a little later? It could be. We, we do know the name of the third episode. HBO. Oathbreaker. Oathbreaker. Yeah, <laughs> HBO released the uh, description and the title. So Oathbreaker, you know, obviously that could apply to Brienne doing something with her sword. It could apply to John um, because he's been termed an Oathbreaker. Um, it could apply to a number of different things, but that is a fair bet that something significant with John happens. And it's uh, in the description, there's no mention of John or the wall, but that just could be because it's super secret. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay, folks, that is our show for today. I think we've covered that episode comprehensively. There's always things we missed. Let us know if you think we missed something important, and we'll try to cover it next week, unless the show just answers those questions before they need to be resolved. So we'll be back next week around the same time. A real quick note about our schedule for the season. If you listen to us on iTunes, which you might be hearing this, our episodes will be out Tuesdays and Thursdays. The show-only reviews will be out on Tuesday and Thursday. The videos will be Monday and Wednesday. Wednesday will be these episodes with Radio Westeros, sometimes with the Shea dealing with reviews for book readers, trying to tie things to the books as much as possible. Monday and Tuesday are the show-only releases. Sort of a first impression, looking things more from a show angle, but talking about things in great detail as well. So, on behalf of everyone, thank you all for tuning in. We will see you next week. We've got nine episodes left. The season is just getting started. The hype train is just rolling. We're having a good time. I expect that to continue. Thanks for staying with us. And we will see you next time. Valar Morgulis, Valar Reredus. And see you next week. Thanks, everybody.